Does anybody recognize where that is? Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon? Almost most of you. How many of you have been to the bottom of the Grand Canyon? And I guess that's to say you got back out. That is an adventure I have yet to do, a rim to rim. Um, I'm not sure it's at the top of my bucket list, as it can get very hot. Uh, and there's a lot of, for those of you who have been there, and especially been to the bottom, there's a lot of warning signs that this is not a safe place necessarily. In fact, I went online. <clears throat> Here's one of them. What goes down must go back up. Sometimes people think, oh, this is not a problem. They get to the bottom, and then they pass out on the way back up. So warning sign. Here's another one. Um, <clears throat> do not attempt to hike from the canyon rim to the river and back in one day. Each year, hikers suffer serious illness or death from exhaustion. Now, those signs really don't mean that, do they? No. I mean, as a man, I can do whatever. Uh-huh. This actually is a, a warning sign that is, is there at the park. Uh, could you run the Boston Marathon? This was a gal that died at 24. She had run the Boston just that year. She thought she was in good enough shape to run down and back up, and she didn't make it. And so I imagine it's with her permission that they post this up here, saying, you know, she was in great shape, and she didn't pay attention to these signs um, and thought she could do it. Of course, there's others about falling, and the, the ground is not always the most stable. Please stay behind railing, which simply calls to some, there's something good out here, come check it out. Here's one from some time ago. It is a 3,000 foot or 3,000 feet to the bottom. Take no chances. Uh, there's a difference between being brave and just plain ordinarily foolish. But the fact remains that every year in all of our parks, not just the Grand Canyon, people die. Sometimes it's simply an accident, but other times it's because they're taking pictures or doing something that they shouldn't and avoiding these signs, saying, warning, hazard, not safe. In fact, uh, this guy wrote a book, Over the Edge, Death in Grand Canyon. He chronicles 700-plus deaths since 1870. And, you know, it keeps happening, so that's why this is the revised and updated edition, apparently. And he d talks about some stories. I don't have the book, but uh, <clears throat> I found some excerpts from it. And he talks about various ones. The one that, that hit home to me the most was a father who was up on the edge trying to be funny about falling off the Grand Canyon and did. That was back in 95, I think it was. So my question this morning is, what do you do when you see a warning sign? And what are those signs put there for? Decoration? Just to look nice? For reading material? I think not. We're continuing this Sabbath with part two of the series that I'm calling, Why Am I a Seventh-day Adventist? That's the question we're asking. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? There's a lot of denominations out there. Why Seventh-day Adventism? And we talked about some of the, the possible reasons last week. Um, what we wrestled with primarily last week was, does the truth really matter? And this idea that truth is relative, and your truth can be fine for you, and my truth can be fine for me. Um, 
The second one that we're going to tackle with today is, isn't loving Jesus enough? What makes you so special will be next week. Um, I guess I got that wrong. But anyway, last week we looked at this, a few of these for review. My ultimate authority is the divine voice in my own soul, period. And you might remember that. And these are books uh, that many are reading and uh, quoting from and so on and so forth. Here's another one. The Bible is not considered an accurate, absolute, authoritative, or authoritarian source, but a book to be experienced. Remember, we talked about experience. And one experience can be as valid as any other can. Experience, dialogue, feelings, and conversations are equated with Scripture on equal footing. And we talked about the dangers of that. You know, this idea that my heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Should I truly just follow my heart and my feelings and my senses? And if so, what is truth? And how is anyone to really know? We looked at a few of these verses. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Here's another one, Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak, speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. And so that's just a few of the ones that we looked at. Oh, and I got this wrong. Going through the rest of this series here. What makes the devil so angry will be another piece we'll look at. And then we're going to finish on what's wrong with being a cultural Adventist. So that's a little aside of where we're going. But today's piece isn't loving Jesus enough. Because that's kind of the buzz phrase. As long as I love Jesus, Jesus is all, Jesus is everything. Now... Don't misunderstand. Jesus is all and Jesus is everything. The problem I have is this idea that I accept Jesus only and that's it. Don't talk to me about doctrine. Don't talk to me about what the Bible has to say. Don't talk to me about any of those things. I just want to accept Jesus only. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That's like uh, somebody asking uh, well, why did you marry Elizabeth? Well, it's because it was Elizabeth only. Okay, well, that's good. What does Elizabeth like to eat? What are her favorite places to go? What does she like to do? I don't get into that. Don't ask me those questions. It's just Elizabeth, period, only, period. I mean, that's it. To me, the idea ought to be, if I love Elizabeth, and she is my all, then I want to know everything about her, right? I want to know what makes her happy. I want to know what makes her sad. I want to certainly avoid those places. I want to know where she likes to go, what she wants to do. Oh, no, I don't want to know about that. Elizabeth, period, all, period. Some say this, the Seventh-day Adventist church has too many doctrines. And we mentioned this last week. Doctrine is simply, the word simply means teaching. Teaching of who, by the way? Jesus, written in his word, his love letter to us. And so if I really care about Jesus, don't I want to know what he has to say to me? I mean, you could ask the question, what do you know about the will of God for your life that you wish you didn't? That's what we're basically saying when we say, I don't want to hear doctrine, you know. La, 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 la. Here Jesus is telling you something. Husbands, how does that work when your wife tells you something and you plug your ears and go, la, 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 la? Does it work out well for you? For a while. 
I have a brave soul up here on the second row. <clears throat> I'll ask you in a few hours. The five S's of Adventism. Have you ever heard this? If not, that's okay. But we have the second coming is the first one. And we're going to go through all five of these. Uh, but you have the second coming, you have the Sabbath, you have the state of the dead, uh, you have the sanctuary, and spirit of prophecy. We're going to look at those five S's because if this idea of any denomination is okay, as long as they love Jesus and follow Jesus, I'll be just fine, then that poses the question, why bother to be a Seventh-day Adventist if I can be anything and everything else? And so that's why I want to ask this question. And these five are kind of the key pillars with which Adventist hangs. And so to me, God gave us these distinctives, and it's not just these things, I understand that, but these are some of the primary distinctives that set us apart from a lot of other denominations that for me is a big reason, big part of why I choose to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Amen. And it's not simply because I like to be right, even though that's part of my name. It's... <laughs> It's because I like to know what the truth is. I like to know what Jesus is telling me, and I don't like to be fooled. Does anybody here like to be fooled? If you like to be fooled, stick your head in the sand, meaning I don't want to hear any of the research on this product or anything else. I'm just going to pretend this is the best vacuum and go buy it. No, research will tell you if it is or not. And the more knowledge that you have, that's another catchphrase, right? Why would you get this one? I did a lot of research. Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. Because it keeps you from being duped into buying things that perhaps you shouldn't. So I'm gonna look at, we're going to look at these five. We're going to try to do that all in the time that we have. And uh, one of those five S's of Adventism is second coming. Now I understand this one is probably not as peculiar to Adventists. But I still think it's an important one for us to look at just briefly, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second coming is that blessed hope. I don't know about you, but I need hope. If this is it, if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, I'm sunk. If my aches and my pains, if my trials and my heartaches, if this is it, but it's not it, friends. We have a blessed hope of something far better, far greater. A deliverer is coming. It's called the second coming. He's going to take us home to be with him for eternity. Another one, John 14, 1 and 2. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. This is Jesus speaking. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Straight from the lips of Jesus, he's promising to come and to take us home. That's the blessed hope. The second coming gives me hope. That's the first one. Check it off. Four more to go. Second one, the sanctuary. Now, probably of the five, the sanctuary is the only one that's truly distinctive or distinctively Adventist. 
all the others somebody shares, but we're still probably the largest group that shares all those others. And even though there's maybe some nuances that they don't understand. But the sanctuary, why is that key? Well, great controversy, 423, it says, the subject of the sanctuary opened to view a complete system of truth. What's a system? Isn't a system something that has a lot of various moving parts that come together? And so, if you will, the sanctuary is a bird's eye view, a framework of restoring mankind, lost mankind. Let's look at uh, this idea of the Old Testament sanctuary. An individual would come, a sinner would place his guilt and transfer it to this perfect lamb, an unblemished lamb, not the, the gimpy lamb, but your most perfect. You would then transfer your sins to this lamb. The perfect lamb was slain and his blood caught in a basin. And the lamb's body was put on the altar. Where are we in this Old Testament sanctuary? In the courtyard. That's where we are. And all of this was to symbolize the ultimate fulfillment of this, which was Jesus' death on the cross. But where are we still? In the courtyard. John 1.29 says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist understood this idea of Jesus as the fulfillment of these lambs that had been sacrificed. Yet most churches out there will say, it's all done. Jesus died on the cross, that's it. Now don't misunderstand me, that is a huge crucial point. Without it, we are utterly and hopelessly lost. It's kind of like the antidote. If I don't have it, I'm lost. But if I don't apply it, a.k.a. drink it or swallow it or whatever I need to do, I'm equally lost. And so in this model that God gave, God's idea, is still not complete. He's not only our lamb, but Jesus is also our high priest. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary. This is the heavenly sanctuary of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Huge key. This is the heavenly sanctuary. Now we could spend a lot more time unpacking how when God gave this blueprint to Moses, it was just that. And it uses language that gives hints all along the way that there's a heavenly sanctuary. In fact, I didn't take the time, but if you go through Revelation we see the sanctuary appear in various chapters all the way through. This heavenly sanctuary is God's idea. It's God's blueprint to help us understand salvation. Here it says in Great Controversy, the intercession of Christ in man's behalf in the sanctuary above is as essential to the plan of salvation as was his death upon the cross. Applying that blood. And so... I think we have some pictures of this here. The high priest, again, symbolic of Jesus, takes the blood, his own blood, and goes into the holy place, and he sprinkles that blood on the veil in various places on our behalf, and then on the day of atonement, he'd go into the most holy place. Hebrews 7, 25, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, why do we need intercession? We need somebody to intercede on our behalf in overcoming sin in our life. We need somebody to apply that blood 
in my place. It's necessary. And without that peace, we're saying Jesus paid it all, which he did, but if he's not applying it on my behalf, if he's not helping me also to overcome sin in my life, and so you have people running around with this idea, as long as I accept Jesus and what he did on the cross, I'm scot-free, I can do whatever I want. Is that truly freedom, friends? To be caught in the chains of sin? And I've told you before, my, if, if my kids, in fact, we got in a pile of ants just this last week. Was it Sabbath or something? We heard Marianne screaming. I've never seen so many ants in my life. I mean, literally thousands teeming, and they were the big ones. And so I went to Marianne. I said, don't worry, Marianne, they won't kill you. Jesus will make it all better when he comes. Is that what Jesus tells us? Does he say, Jesus paid it all, you'll be fine, just keep wallowing in this painful situation? No, he gives us promises to free us from that. Amen. He doesn't leave us in the outer courtyard of the sanctuary, but he intercedes on our behalf to deal with the problem of sin. Great Controversy 489. Through defects in the character, Satan works to gain control of the whole mind. What's it through? Defects in the character. That's your character and my character. To gain control of the entire mind. And he knows that if these defects are cherished, he will what? Succeed. And so we have this lie going on out there that's saying, just accept Jesus and that's it. But if I cherish these defects of character... And if my pastor's telling me it's okay, you can't overcome sin until Jesus comes. Now, it's only by his grace, it's only by his power, but if he's not powerful enough to deliver me out of that sin, then maybe we're worshiping the wrong God. Because maybe the devil's more powerful than God is. Because apparently when it comes to my sin, he says, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do about it. Devil's more powerful. Not true, friends. God is more powerful than your sin and my sin. And He wants to intercede on our behalf. And we can claim the promises in God's Word, which is living and powerful and active to overcome the wiles of the devil. Therefore, He's constantly seeking to deceive the followers of Christ with His fatal sophistry that it is impossible for them to overcome. If I can just get them to, to, to submit to that, oh, you can't overcome, you can't overcome, you can't overcome. How does that work out, parents, when you tell your, your kids, well, I just don't know, this biology professor is so hard. You're never going to pass. You're never going to pass, you're never going to pass, you're never going to pass. What do you mean, mom, dad? You're going to fail, you're going to fail, you're going to fail. No, we can have victory in Jesus Christ. It's key. But Jesus pleads in their behalf, his wounded hands, his bruised body, and he declares to all who would follow him, my grace, Jesus talking, my grace is sufficient for thee. Can anybody say amen? amen. Let none then regard their defects as incurable. God will give faith and grace to overcome them. It's by faith. It's by grace. It's by God's power. And I surrender, I submit. I admit and I submit. So Jesus' work in restoring man, we have in AD 31, Jesus' death in the courtyard. 
But then 31 to 1844, Jesus ministering in the holy place. But then from 1844 to the present, Jesus is ministering in the most holy place. And that's significant because that's the last piece, friends. Day of Atonement, that's the last. That's where the children of Israel were supposed to afflict their souls and to be on their knees and praying, Lord, is there any unconfessed sin? Is there anything that displeases you? Because I don't want it to be left on on me. I want it to be cast upon you. I want it to be forgiven. That's where we are in her history. And if you believe this 2300-day prophecy, if you believe that Jesus came right on time, was baptized, died, and then the stoning of Stephen, all those things just exactly as they said. And then you jump out here to 1844. From your view, it should be over here, shouldn't it? To 1844. If you believe Jesus was in fact the Christ, then you also have to believe something happened in 1844. And this is exactly what happened. He started ministering in the heavenly sanctuary in the most holy place. Last piece. That should create some urgency for us. But instead, we just like to think it's business as usual. No big deal. We'll keep sinning until Jesus comes. Don't even bother. Revelation twenty-two eleven. By the way, the last piece after this uh, most holy place is the close of probation. This idea, he who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. But he who is righteous, Let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Today is our time to decide whose side we're going to be on. So the sanctuary gives me a complete picture of salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, so we've got one and two down. Let's keep going. Number three, the spirit of prophecy. I'm actually going to spend a whole sermon on this. So we'll just do this very quickly if we can. I do want you to notice these verses. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, the church, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And so here we have referred to God's end-time church, his end-time people. And they have two characteristics. Did you catch them? Commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. There they are. Revelation 19.10 says, For the spirit of prophecy... Sorry, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So God's end-time church will have two characteristics. And if you have your phone book here, you pull them out, how many of of them are following those two characteristics? One. As far as I'm concerned, or as far as I'm aware, there may be a few others that claim to have a prophet, but not many. In every major period of earth's history, God has raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what's impending. People say, that's so weird. The 70th of this church has a prophet. That's just, ugh, I don't know. Let's just throw the prophet aside. You know, people have done that in Scripture other times before. In fact, just the other day, we were reading our children's Sabbath school lesson. Elisha the prophet. Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. No respect for the prophet. Bears came out of the woods. How do you think God feels when we take his prophet and throw it under the bus? And it's not something new. In every major period of earth's history, God's raised up a prophet to prepare his people for what's impending. Sometimes we call it present truth. What you need to know right now, if this building was on fire, present truth would be, here's the exits. 
When the flood was coming, whom did God raise up? You've seen these slides before. Noah, he was a prophet. When God was choosing to raise up a chosen people, whom did the father of Israel? Who was the father of Israel? Who did God raise up? Father Abraham. When the Exodus came, who did God raise up? Moses. When the monarchy came to Israel, whom did God raise up? Samuel. When the exile came for the kingdom, whom did God raise up? And there's a host of them. There's just a few. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and so on. When the Messiah came the first time, whom did God raise up? John the Baptist. When the gospel was to go to the Gentiles and all the world, whom did God raise up? Paul. Okay, so here's the million-dollar question. When the Messiah is coming the second time, whom would God raise up? Well, I don't think there's going to be anybody. Doesn't it make sense he would follow the same pattern he's followed all along? Amos 3, 7, surely the Lord God does how much? Nothing, unless he reveals his secret to his servant, the prophets. I believe Alan White was a prophet, and we're not going to take the time to go through the tests of a prophet this morning. We might do that one in the next one. I'm not sure. I haven't fully decided. But if you're on, if you're on the fence on this, you know, sometimes people say, well, we're, we're, we're people that live by the book. Well, that's good. I just showed you two verses that show God's end-time people will have the spirit of prophecy. So if you're truly the people of the book, but if you reject Ellen White, then we're not God's end-time remnant church of Bible prophecy. We're not this close to Jesus coming. It kind of tears down the whole thing, and we're still just waiting. Kind of like the Jews, we're still waiting for a Messiah. This is just one point from this study. North American Division Church Growth Survey. They did a, a study to find out the people that, that read Ellen White's writings regularly and those that don't, what differences are there. And one of these questions, even though all of them were higher, but uh, in terms of their relationship with Jesus, in terms of outreach to the community and all these things, have daily personal Bible study. These people didn't know. That was just one question. Do you read Ellen White regularly? They didn't know what, how that would affect the entire study. But once they answer that, they separate that into two groups. Is there a difference between those that read her and those that don't? 82% of the readers of Ellen White daily read their Bible versus 47% of the non-readers. That's huge to me. A false prophet is going to draw people away from Scripture. A true prophet is continually pointing back to Scripture again and again to where they're reading her more. That's a 35% difference. To me, that's a big deal. So we'll talk more about that in a future sermon. But the spirit of prophecy grounds me in God's word. People like to think the spirit of prophecy is pulling me away. No, 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 no. It's grounding me in God's word. I'm reading his word more now. I'm more excited about it. It makes more sense to me. And over and over and over in her writings, I see scripture quoted again and again and again and again. So that's number three, spirit of prophecy grounds me in God's word. Five S's of Adventism, second coming, sanctuary, spirit of prophecy, state of the dead. We talked about this one in, in uh, the interfaith class. Spiritualism teaches that the soul is immortal. If you're watching the president give his address this week, you saw how <clears throat> there was this long applause. And I don't want to be judgmental of this individual. This is what they understand. This is what virtually the world understands. And our president says, Ryan's smiling down as he's looking down. He was a Navy SEAL who, who died in action recently. He's looking down. He's smiling. 
and he can see, or I don't know exactly what he said, but made a reference to the fact that he's in heaven. And everybody just accepts that. And they feel that's exactly what the Bible teaches. But we have so many verses. In fact, we spent a whole study, and, and we couldn't even scratch the surface on all the verses. But the soul that sinneth, it shall die. No, the soul lives on. No, it doesn't. Another one. Right here, the Bible used the word soul 1,600 times. Never once does it use the word immortal soul. They don't put those together. We put those together. Jesus comes to give us immortality. We don't already have it. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And again, we could flesh this out with all kinds of verses. Here's another one. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. The reason I pull this one out of the many is that the devil is using spiritualism big time in the media, big time everywhere you look, and this is the crux of the matter, is that somebody that you know that's passed away is going to communicate with you and tell you all kinds of things. They're going to quote scripture. You're going to check it out. Man, this is true. And why wouldn't I believe grandma? She's always been good to me. She knew her Bible better than anybody or whatever it might be. And so after he builds rapport, he, not being grandma, but the demon, from that trickery, he can then pipe into all of these people that are involved in this spiritualism all around the globe anything that he wants to. Any of his lies, he can just mass communicate and people will believe it. Why? Because it's coming from grandma. First Timothy 6.15, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light. If we don't understand this key piece, we're setting ourselves up for major deception, friends. Big time. Deadly delusions. I mean, there, there's book after book soul sensing, how to communicate with dead and loved ones. I mean, this is straight from the pit, how to talk to spirits. I mean, over and over and over, it's everywhere. Any of you that, that are in the media at all, you could just nod your head and say, yeah, we see it all the time. It's in virtually every movie that's out there. Great Controversy 551, the doctrine of man's consciousness in death, especially the belief that spirits of the dead return to minister to the living, has prepared the way for modern spiritualism. I mean, this one single belief literally unplugs spiritualism. Why do you think the devil's working so hard to get it out there over and over and over? He has power to bring before men the appearance of their departed friends. The counterfeit is perfect. The familiar look, the words, the tone are reproduced with marvelous distinctness. Without suspicion of danger, they give ear to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Does that make anybody nervous? The pretended visitants from the world of spirits sometimes utter cautions and warnings which prove to be correct. Then, as confidence is gained, they present doctrines that directly undermine faith in the scriptures. With an appearance of deep interest in the well-being of their friends on earth, they insinuate the most dangerous errors. Great Controversy 552. Friends, the state of the dead is the safeguard for you and I. It quiets the deceiving voices. Period. 
To me, that's another pretty important reason to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Because otherwise, I'm being set up. The world is being set up for this delusion. And then number five, the Sabbath. We're going to have to go like gangbusters. Are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. We may not read all these passages, but don't throw rocks. The Sabbath, I think, is a pretty plain truth in Scripture. I say pretty plain. I think it's very plain. Let me say that a little better. Number one, it's given at creation. I have a verse for that, but I think you can find Genesis and read that and what God did on the seventh day. It's given at Sinai. We have it right there in the heart of the Ten Commandments, right? Remember the Sabbath day. This isn't new. It's been around since creation to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, in case you just think you can Sabbath any time that you want to, the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, and that you shall not do any work, and so on. We have it kept by his people, Ezekiel 20, verse 12, moreover, I also give them my Sabbath to be a sign between them and me. Sounds like a couple of teenagers. They're exchanging coats or watches or whatever else. It's going to be a sign that we're together. The Sabbath is God's sign with us that they are my people. They belong to me. And anybody who recognizes a sign for what it is doesn't just take that jacket and throw it on the floor. What does that just say? We're done. And the Sabbath is God's sign. Number four, it was kept by Jesus. Jesus is our example. Not just in living, but overcoming sin, by the way, but also in the Sabbath. And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Number five, it's honored by the disciples. Well, this, you know, when he died, everything changed. No, it didn't. Acts 17, 1 and 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went in to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. Acts 13, 42, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And this is just a few out of several that we have, many in the book of Acts. Number six is a sign of God's power. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they have existed and were created. Sign of Jesus as the creator and his power. And lastly, kept on the new earth. <clears throat> Isaiah 66, 22 and 23. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So even in heaven, we're going to continue to keep the Sabbath. It's very plain. All right, if you have your Bibles, we have to open them now to Revelation 13, because I want you to see this in your own Bible. Revelation chapter 13. Beginning verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. Now, we're kind of doing like a rock skipping off a pond. There's a lot of things that we can't unpack right here, but if you really study that out, and I think many of you have, if you haven't, come see me, and I'll be happy to study it out with you. But we see that as the papacy. In fact, most Protestant churches would agree with us on that, except now they're kind of backpedaling significantly on this. But it says in verse 3, and I saw one of his heads as if it was mortally wounded, 
That fits into prophecy too. And his deadly wound was healed and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Have we seen this deadly wound healed? Yes. Is all the world marveling after the beast? Yes. And what's the issue? Verse 4, so they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast who is able to make war with him? And then we have some more confirmations of who this is. Verse 8, all who dwell on the earth will worship him. And then in verse 10 at the end, it says, here is the patience and faith of the saints. Then verse 11, we have another beast come on the scene, coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is the United States in Bible prophecy. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast, the papacy, and caused the earth and those to worship in it Sorry, those who dwell in it, I'm getting ahead of myself, what's the issue though? To worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down from heaven. We talked last week about trusting our feelings and our senses and what we see. And here we have signs again and miracles and fire coming down from heaven. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth, and the King James says, that they should make an image. An image is a likeness of. They should make an image or likeness of the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. That image, by the way, is Sunday sacredness. Verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many who would not worship, there's the key issue again, the image, worship, the image, image, worship, Sunday sacredness of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Friends, this idea of the Sabbath isn't just a nice day off. It is that. But it's a huge way to keep God's people from being deceived at end time. The central issue regarding the mark of the beast, what is it? It's worship. It's over and over and over and over throughout the passage. How will you worship? Will you do it God's way or your own way? And you've seen this before, the name, title, and territory, that's what makes up a seal. So an example, Abraham Lincoln, he's the president and his territory, the United States of America. In the heart of the Sabbath, you have the Lord your God. He's the creator. And what's the territory? Heaven and earth. That's God's seal. The Sabbath is God's seal. I don't want the mark. I want God's seal. Don't you? You have it right here in the Ten Commandments. For in six days, the Lord. There's the name. Made. He's the creator. The heavens and the earth. That's his territory. But we're going to see people abandon this idea of the Sabbath. They're already doing it. They've already done it, more or less, haven't they? Uh Uh-huh. Did my remote decide to die? Oh, there we go. Okay. Revelation 14, three angels' message. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach those who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Direct excerpt from the fourth commandment saying, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. 
sanctuary language. And worship him who made heaven and the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Actually, that's the excerpt. But anyway, fourth commandment. Then the third angel, skipping down, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. And it concludes, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus or testimony of Jesus. It's a big deal. So we have worship the creator, we have don't worship the beast, keep the commandments and faith of Jesus, all right there in the three angels' message. But notice to this, if I can bring in great controversy, in our meetings we don't usually bring that in, but if we believe she's a prophet, I think we should listen to what she has to say. As the crowning act in the great drama of deception, I hope you're paying attention, this is the crowning act in the great drama of deception, Satan himself will personate Christ resembling the description of the Son of God given by John in the Revelation. The glory that surrounds him is unsurpassed by anything that mortal eyes have yet beheld. Can you imagine it? No, you can't. Better than anything you've ever seen. The shout of triumph rings out upon the air. Christ has come. Christ has come. Is there some emotion in that? Are people looking at their feelings? Are they looking with their eyes? The people prostrate themselves in adoration before him while he lifts up his hands and pronounces a blessing upon them as Christ blessed his disciples when he was upon the earth. They're pointing out all the key passages they want to to say, yep, looks good to me. His voice is soft and subdued, yet full of melody. In gentle, compassionate tones, he presents some of the same gracious, heavenly truths which the Savior uttered. He heals the diseases of the people. And then in his assumed character of Christ, assumed character of Christ, he claims to have changed the Sabbath to Sunday and commands all to hallow the day which he has blessed. Is that contrary to Scripture? It is. But everything in your person at that moment will say, this is for real. Your eyes, your ears, your senses, everything. Peer pressure? You want to talk about peer pressure. It's the same thing as we have in, in, in Daniel with the bowing down to the image. Some great parallels there, by the way. And he declares that those who persist in keeping holy the seventh day are blaspheming. It gets worse. You are the problem, Seventh-day Adventists. You're the ones. You're blaspheming his name by refusing to listen to his angels sent to them with light and truth. Maybe those are the angels sitting on the beds telling people what to believe. And now you're the problem. This is the strong, almost overmastering delusion. Friends, if we are not grounded here, if we don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt, Man, I know this is this, what he's saying. I know what everybody else is saying. I know this looks good. I know he's quoting scripture. I know that the masses are going after him. But I also know God's word says this. And God's word says that. And he talks about his Sabbath as a sign. It talk, in fact, it even tells us that this would happen. Because our God of love sent us a prophet for what's impending. And so what does the devil do? He throws out the prophet. And his people throw out the prophet. And it leaves us exposed. 
All because, well, the prophet offended me in some point. The Bible offended me in some point. And so I'm just, I like the culture of Adventism. I like the people. I like the schools. I like whatever. So I'm just going to hang out for a while. Until this point. Maybe before. It's not worth this. Sabbath? Not worth this. Life and death? Being at odds? And I imagine, and I'm one of these that whimper too, but I imagine we whimper and whine about, well, you know, my job, they, they, I lost my job, or this happened, or that happened, all because of the Sabbath. Wah. I haven't heard of anybody in our community that has starved over the Sabbath yet. Have you? And I'm right in there with them. I love to whine and complain. Oh, oh, oh. If we're whining and complaining now, talking to myself here, Okay, we need to get to lunch. I need Mary Grace doing this. Tell me to calm down. So we have the second coming, the sanctuary, spirit of prophecy, state of the dead, and the Sabbath, the five S's of Adventism. And this idea of Jesus all. I don't mind Jesus being all as long as he's all of what's written in here. That's what I'm okay with. Second coming gives me hope. The sanctuary gives me a complete picture of salvation. The spirit of prophecy grounds me in God's word, gives me understanding of God's word. The state of the dead quiets the deceiving voices. And through the Sabbath, I receive the seal of God. And just when it seems like all hope is lost, Jesus will come and deliver his people. In the future, the final issue of loyalty will center around worship. The warnings are there. In the days of Noah, God invited his people to take a stand. In the days of Daniel, God invited his people to take a stand. In the days of Jesus, God invited his people to take a stand. In the days of early Christians, God invited his people to take a stand. In the dark ages, same thing, God invited his people to take a stand. And in the last days, we're not waiting for the last days, folks, we're living in them. God invites his people to take a stand. 2 Thessalonians 2.9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Oh, just tell me lies. Tell me lies. Tell me sweet little lies. Why am I a Seventh-day Adventist? Because truth matters. There is such a thing as absolute truth. And for the second reason, because our message, I believe, is a safeguard to end time deceptions. Period. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil. So Proverbs 4, 5, and 6, get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will preserve you. Love her, and she will keep you. That is my plea, that we will feed on God's word. 
day in and day out, so that when these deceptions come, we can stand alone on the Word of God. Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Word that grounds us, for your truth that protects us, and your arms that envelop us. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.